Good morning, people of God. It's a blessing to uh, be here together, grouped together around God's Word. Uh, before we jump into the scriptures this morning, in this time of, of preaching and listening and responding to the Word of God, I just want to make one announcement that I think is, uh, is important for all of us uh, who are attending Four Corners, and that is next Sunday, immediately after the morning service, we're going to have a meeting, a congregational meeting, uh, that will stop at 1 o'clock. So I want to I I reassure you of that. We will cut it off at 1 o'clock, and it will be an opportunity for us to field some questions, uh, for us to present to you, and then afterwards, we'll stick around after 1 o'clock if you have some other questions you would like to ask us. The, the reason for the meeting is that in light of our current attendance, the elders, especially in the kids' space, if you go back there, you'll, you'll see what I mean. But in light of our current attendance, uh, we as elders have been trying to discern God's will as to the next steps for our church in terms of space, in terms of building. So uh, next Sunday, after the morning service, we will have an opportunity to share with you all uh, what, we, uh, what we have been considering and to, uh, to field any questions that you may have. So please, if you're attending Four Corners, uh, please, please come to that next Sunday. So today is the second part of a, a sermon entitled, A New Start. And we began last week, when we, when we started off in our sermon last week, we began with an image and two questions. So one image and two questions. And the image was of a child on a rocking horse. And it, the description of that image is motion but no progress. So I started by saying that there was an 18th century pastor who went into the, the home of one of his congregants and there he saw a child on a rocking horse and he immediately said, what an image of so many Christian lives. Motion but no progress. And so that was the image we started with. And the first question that we had was, does this describe your Christian life? Now, undoubtedly, it is the case that from day to day, week to week, month to month, we as Christians have various struggles. We are always in warfare. The Christian life is a warfare. It is a daily carrying of our cross. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life in terms of a farmer or a soldier or an athlete that the Christian life is one that it requires vigor, it requires vigilance. And so we recognize that this is the case for all of us. But the question I'm asking here is, does this motion but no progress really describe the state of your Christian life? Do you, do you consider when you look back over your Christian life that, that there really has been no growth or no substantive growth towards the Lord and away from sin. Lots of movement, maybe. Lots of busyness in your mind or in your actions, but very little progress. So does this describe your Christian life? That was the question, the first question that we started with last week. And the second question was this. So what do we do? If that's the case... If it is, in fact, the case that you would look in the mirror this morning and you would say, you know, it, my Christian life is much like that. It is much like motion, but no progress. So what do I do? How do we make 
progress? How do we move forward this afternoon, tomorrow, in a way that's different from what we've been doing, practically speaking? So that's the second question. And I think the answer to this second question is given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. So if you will go ahead and turn there. Matthew 7, 7 to 11. I think this is Jesus' answer to the how question or to the what now, what to do, what next question. And it begins, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. That's how it begins and we'll read it here in a moment. But I think we are meant to, as we enter into this passage in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we are meant to wake up to the opportunity here for a new start. So let me say this, wherever you are in your life, these words, I believe, provide a clear reset button. No matter where you're at, you, you came here maybe this morning very discouraged about the state of your Christian life, the state of your walk with Christ, your own assurance that you belong to Christ. Wherever you are, these words offer a reset button. I think they give us a path forward. They give us the way forward for the Christian who feels lost in the woods. You know, if you've gone on a hiking trip before, you've ever been out in the woods in the nature trails, and sometimes you can, the, the paths can get a little cluttered, and you don't, the, the, it's not clear where you're going. You don't really know the right direction. I think that this passage, these words of Jesus, really are like a signpost pointing us in the right direction. What next? And although these words of promise are for the Christian or directed towards the disciple, I think they also tell us what the non-Christian, the truly lost person, must do. What I mean by that is that as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we have to constantly remind ourselves that this message is for the believer. This message is for the disciples. Remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, who come to him, his disciples came to him, and he opened up his mouth and began to teach them saying, and then we launch right into the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we get this language of Father, which we're also going to look at today. So we know that what Jesus is saying here is directed towards the Christian, but the same truth that we find here, ask, seek, Knock, that can be extended to the unbeliever because that is precisely what God in his word holds out to the non-Christian. So, you're here this morning maybe and you're not a Christian. You would, you would say, I'm not a Christian. Or maybe you, through the preaching of God's word, it, comes, it becomes clear to you that you are a nominal Christian. And what I mean by nominal Christian is a Christian in name only, or perhaps a Bible Belt cultural Christian. A Bible Belt cultural Christian is someone who has grown up, perhaps, well, here in this case, in the South, and who as a result of growing up in this geographical location has been inundated with Bible language since you were a child, perhaps. And on account of that, you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die not on account of the blood of Jesus Christ. So maybe you're here this morning and you fit that description. Either way, either way, 
The message of Romans 10, 13, I think, is is couched in this message that we find here in the Sermon on the Mount. And it is this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is gracious and merciful and kind. So if you've come here this morning and you are not a Christian, call upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord that we have in the Word of God, the God presented to us in the Bible. This Jesus, this Jesus who instructs his people, this Jesus who would go on to die on the cross for sinners, this Jesus who gives his Holy Spirit freely. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Not one person whom the Father draws to me, Jesus says, I will cast out. Not one. So come to him this morning. He invites you to come to him, to repent of your sins, to have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction, to repent of your sins, and to trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross to deal with your sin as you trust him. So I think here, although this passage is for the believer, there is much that the unbeliever can reflect on as he or she engages with this passage as well. So let's read it. If you will, please stand with me for this reading of God's word, Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You can go ahead and be seated. So let's ask this Father this morning to do a work here, right now, as we open up his word, to do a work in each of us, each of us, all of us. Let's pray collectively that if if among us today there is anyone who does not know the Lord, who is not a regenerate, born-again, transformed Christian with a new heart, with affections for God and a hatred of sin, that if that hasn't happened for anyone among us this morning, that God would do the work of converting sinners to himself. Let's pray. Our good Father, what a joy, what a privilege it is to come into your holy presence right now as a local church. Father, we are grateful that you are mindful of us. What is man that you are mindful of him? Father, our lives are, as the Bible often describes, a vapor a fading flower 
here today and gone tomorrow, all of our lives can be described in that way. And yet, Father, we know that you turn an attentive ear to us always. Father, we're grateful for this. We thank you that you care enough about us to send your own son to purchase us, to gather us, and that you give us your spirit and that with your spirit you make utterances to yourself too deep for words, groanings too deep for words. You pray for us to yourself, Father, by your spirit in the name of your son who intercedes for us and through this wonderful triune work you provide all that we need. Father, we are grateful this morning for these wonderful truths, and we praise you as our God. We ask that you will do mighty things among us today, Father. We are expecting that to happen because we know what you promise us. And so, Abba, Father, we pray for that this morning. We ask that you will work in every single heart here this morning, that minds will be attuned to your word, that that you will protect every mind from distraction. Father, that you will push push away every scheme of Satan, that evil one, that enemy, that father of lies and murderer from the beginning. Father, would you protect us from him, his devices and his schemes, we ask this morning. We pray that you will be glorified among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if Jesus' teaching in this passage, as I've said, provides the way forward, what does Jesus have to say about this way forward? And I think there are five things. We began to look at this last week, these five things. This is the only way, the sure way, the persistent way, the natural way, and the perfect way. And last week we covered verses 7 to 8. And in verses 7 to 8, we looked at those first three points. But just by way of review, so that we can kind of set up what we're going to look at today, because really, you can't just jump in to verse 9 without having a basic understanding of what's going on in verses 7 to 8. So first, we saw that this is the only way. And what I meant by that is, if we are to live the life that we are called to live in the Sermon on the Mount, if we are to actually do and obey what Jesus has, has laid out for us in the, the verses that lead up to the passage we've come to. We've already covered two entire chapters and six verses of this chapter. Jesus has had a lot to say to us so far. And if we are to do what Jesus has said, it must come by way of prayer. Let me say it this way. Prayer is the answer to every single how question. It is the answer to every how question you could ever have because that is what it looks like to be poor in spirit. How do I do this? How do I overcome this? How do I grow? How do I stop? How do I start? Prayer is the answer to every single one of those questions. And there is therefore no substitute for prayer. 
There's nothing that you can take and cram into the space of prayer in your life if you are to live what Christ has put out before us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the only way forward. So you could have all kinds of resolve and determination after the preaching of the word, after hearing a sermon, or after hearing God's word read, or after an early morning time with God. You could have all of the resolve and determination in the world, and I assure you, you will fall flat on your face without prayer. There is absolutely nothing that we can put in the slot of prayer if we are to live as unto the Lord in worship, in faithfulness, in obedience, in holiness, in perfection, as Jesus even says. Be perfect as your Father is perfect. We know that we will not attain perfection in this life, but Jesus holds it out for us as what we are to pursue. Hunger, thirst for righteousness, only by way of prayer. That's it. That's the only way. The the second thing we looked at last week is that it is the sure way. This is not just the only way forward, but it is a guaranteed way forward. Isn't this amazing? Such a simple answer that Jesus holds out for us is that he says, this is the one way that all of these things will, will come to pass and you can be confident that this is not just the one way and it might work out. It's not as though Jesus holds this out as the, the best possible avenue for you to move forward with the Lord. But he says this will be effective. It will bear fruit. It will work. It is backed with a divine promise. That's what we find in verses 7 and 8. And then finally last week we saw that it is the persistent way. This way forward is not just prayer. So we could say, yes, pray more, pray more, pray more. No, this is not just prayer. What Jesus is giving us here is not just prayer loosely defined or or vaguely defined. What Jesus is putting out here for us is persistent prayer. We must keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, not giving up as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not giving up as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, there are passages in Scripture that talk about Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. What does that mean, with all your heart? Jesus tells us that if we pray and ask for things, he will give it to us if we have faith. And here's what I want you to see. Hearty prayer. And faithful, believing prayer are packed into persistence. Because here's the thing. What's really going on when we pray an instantaneous prayer, a spontaneous prayer, a momentary prayer, without any kind of persistence and follow-up, what's really going on is a lack of heart and a lack of faith. And so all of these ideas tie together. What does it look like practically to pray in faith? We say, yes, I believe. We don't even know what that means. It's some kind of inner disposition thing that we can't quite put our finger on. Or I'll pray with all my heart. That means be loud and intense when we pray. No. It means keep on seeking the face of God. Don't stop doing it. So this way forward, 
it's the persistent way. Verses 7 to 8, it's the only way, the sure way, and the persistent way. And today we come to verses 9 to 11, where we find that it is also the natural way and the perfect way. So that's where we're going to turn now, the natural way. As we've seen in this series, this series in the Sermon on the Mount, prayer, or here as it's described, asking, seeking, knocking, this is prayer language. So as we've seen throughout this series on the Sermon on the Mount, prayer is a major theme in this nutshell presentation of the Christian life. Have you thought about that? As we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, have you considered that Jesus here is really distilling and concentrating the the great truths of what it means to be a Christian? What it means to be a Christian in terms of how, how we think about our identity. What it means to be a Christian in terms of the inner workings of our hearts and our souls. What it means to be a Christian in terms of practice and what we do. Jesus here boils that down and gives us a nutshell picture of what it is to be a Christian. And have you considered how frequently he speaks of prayer? But there is one key observation that I think we need to make if we are going to understand what prayer is. So we we know that Jesus has a lot to say about prayer, as we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount, but there's there's a very significant observation that if we miss this, we miss the nature of prayer. We, we, we fail to see what prayer is at its core, in its essence, by nature. And here's the observation. Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, is always accompanied by a reference to God as our Father. Have you noticed that? It's incredible. I want to show you how that's playing out in the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to go through the passages of prayer. I want you to see this, that for Jesus, every time he teaches about prayer, every single time, he mentions the fatherhood of God. So let's see that. So first thing Jesus has to say about prayer is do not do this in order to be seen by other people. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't pray with one eye open on the side, looking to the left or to the right, trying to determine who's watching you so that they can think you're so great. Don't pray in that way. And what does Jesus say in that teaching? He says this, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, my disciple, when you pray, Christian, go into your room and shut the door and listen. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So when Jesus wants to instruct us about this aspect of prayer, that is not doing it in performance to others so we can be praised by them, he wants to tie into that the notion that God is our Father. It's key. It's central to that particular teaching on prayer. He goes on. Chapter 6, verses 7 to 8. He says, don't pray mindlessly and with empty words. Listen to what he says. When you pray, 
Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The Christian ought not to pray for performance sake because there's a Father who sees in secret. The Christian ought not to pray mindlessly and with empty words so as to coerce a deity, but should pray knowing that his or her father knows already every single need in every single nook and cranny of his or her life. A truth about prayer, an aspect of prayer, the fatherhood of God. Third, Jesus says there's a particular way to pray. We spent quite a bit of time looking at Jesus' model for prayer, which tells us kind of what, what sort of prayer content ought we to have. It, Jesus gives us a guide. What's the content and the order of that content as we come to God in prayer? Well, notice when he teaches that, what is the very first thing he says? What is the address? All that prayer content, which is to define our praying. All of those petitions with which we are to come to God, all of that begins with these words. Our Father in heaven. We know how it goes on from there. So whether it is hypocrisy or mindlessness or aimlessness in prayer, in every instance, if Jesus has something to teach us about prayer, he wants to put at the heart of that idea the fatherhood of God. And then we come to our passage on prayer in chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, where Jesus makes this theme of God's fatherhood even more explicit, the passage that we're in today. And he does this by first pointing to the father-son relationship among human beings. So look at verses 9 to 10. So we've looked at verses 7 to 8 last time. Now let's look at verses 9 to 10. Once again, Jesus puts fatherhood at the center of prayer. Verse 9, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Here we have a picture. A picture of a human father, or a picture of human fatherhood, as it relates to the needs and requests of their children. Jesus says, look out and consider fathers in general, children in general. We have a son, child who has a need. And based on that need, he makes a request to his father. We have a lot of, of young couples with children in our church. And so all throughout the day, we hear, mommy, daddy, Sometimes, daddy, 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 right in the middle of a conversation or something like that, we hear all the time requests being perpetually made to us as parents. So based on those needs, we have a picture of a child who is coming to his father making requests. The father is the one who is both able to meet 
those needs and responsible for meeting those needs and even more, who is disposed to meeting those needs by nature. So what does he do? He does not ignore. He listens. He does not neglect. He gives. He does not harm. He helps. And that's where we get this image of bread or, or stones or fish or serpent. What's going on there? Well, these, these little loaves of bread would have, would have looked very similar to large stones. And the same would be true of Jesus is here giving the image of, of a fish that could look like a serpent. And rather than giving the child something that would be utterly useless, but even more, would be harmful and cruel. You imagine a child saying, Father, can you give me some bread? And you laughingly, cruelly hand your child a rock that looks like a loaf of bread, and they bite into it and crack all their little front teeth. That's a horrible, cruel, despicable image. Or they ask for a fish, and they're given a serpent, something that would have been unclean for Jews to eat, but would not have been uh, edible, but even more, if alive, would have bitten the child, potentially killed the child. We see that with the parallel passage in Luke where we have an egg or a scorpion. Would you give your child, if they ask for an egg, would you give them a scorpion? The point here is that a father does not, is not disposed naturally to harm his child but to give good things to his child when he asks. Jesus is saying that this is the normal pattern among human beings. This is what human fathers are inclined to do and tend to do, but unfortunately, this is not what fathers always do. So it's important that I make this comment now, is that one of the greatest obstacles sometimes to seeing the word father with any kind of positive connotation is that for some of you, maybe you, did, maybe you did have a cruel father. Maybe you did have a father that did not, that did not appear to be disposed towards, towards your good. Don't think Jesus is here trying to neglect those instances but as he looks out over a group of disciples, those who are following him, he takes what is generally the case, what is typically the case in human nature, in human societies, wherever you might go in the world, whatever culture you might find yourself in, what is generally the case is that this is how fathers relate to their children. This is what they're inclined to do. And what they tend to do. And here's the main thing I want you to see. This setup, this pattern of needing, asking, and receiving is natural. Catch this. It's natural or inherent to the father-child relationship. This is part and parcel of the father-child bond. This is the natural way. It is natural to this relationship. And this is exactly how we must see prayer. In other words, all of this language about fatherhood mixed with this language about prayer tells us that we could really substitute for the word prayer, we could substitute the word prayer with being a child of the father. Think about that for a moment. 
Someone maybe walks into the room and you're praying. They ask you, what are you doing? Maybe it's your spouse or your child. Where you doing? I- I'm praying. What if we began to substitute for that word prayer? This is what I'm getting at. We began to substitute for that word prayer as though it's this separate, distinct entity. We began to substitute for that word this. I am being a child of my father. I am, I am being functioning as a child of my father. That is precisely what prayer is. It is not this distinct thing that we set over here, but it is being, functioning as a child to the father. This is naturally what it means. This is the the great expression of being a child of the father. We know this. Because we see our relationship with our children in much the same way. As I said before, all the time, there is perpetually our children coming to us for things. We don't see each of those requests as some kind of distinct thing that we set over to the side and then we see our relationship with our children. No, that's inherent to the relationship. They're a child. We are their parents and they come to us. They have needs, they ask, and they receive from us us. We're going to continue to look at this theme of God's fatherhood in our next point. But how does what we've seen so far practically affect the way we pray or think about prayer? And here's what I think it teaches us. Prayer is not something superimposed on or added to the Christian life. Hear this, Christian, hear this. Prayer is the Christian life. That's what we have to see. Prayer is the Christian life. And that is what begins to help us understand what Paul means when he says, pray without ceasing. If In your mind, prayer is this separate thing where you've got the Christian life and imagine a bucket. This is the Christian life and you you sort of drop in prayer to the Christian life. Then when you read something like Paul's injunction to us, pray or Paul's instruction to us, pray without ceasing. You think, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what to do with that. How many rocks do I need to put in this bucket? But when you begin to see That this is the natural way that a child and his or her father relate to one another. Then there's no more thinking about prayer as something that needs to be added to the Christian life. Let me say two other things on this point that I think might be helpful. First, prayer is not inherently, therefore, a duty. Now, this is very important. Jesus holds out prayer as a religious practice. We saw that when we came into chapter 6. Prayer and fasting and giving. So what I don't mean to communicate here is that there isn't duty in the Christian life, because there is. Or that there is not discipline in the Christian life, because there is. We talk about spiritual disciplines. There are times when we don't want to pray. We should have no romantic idea of, well, I'm always going to want to pray because I'm a child of the Father. 
No, there are many times we don't want to pray. And the disciplines in our lives, they help us, they hold us in that we might have space for communion with our Father. So what I don't mean to communicate here is that those spiritual disciplines are in any way bad or negative. But there is a problem that maybe you have fallen into. And maybe you're even sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I mean, I pray all the time, but my Christian life's just, just kind of doing nothing. And I'm praying all the time. Maybe the problem is for you. Prayer is mere duty. And maybe the, the, the change, the paradigm shift that we need to see is that when you're praying, you're not praying You're being a child of your father. Not mere duty. Being who you are by nature. The second thing that I want to point out here is that prayer is not a mystical key. That might be another problem with your prayer life. Maybe you say, well, okay, I'm not in the duty camp, but... You know, I am in the mystical key camp. And what I mean by that is God is like this, you know, mysterious sort of transcendent reality. And he holds all these things that you want to get to. And the, the, most, the, the, the most obvious symptom of this is this, this dogged pursuit among, among Western Christians, especially those in our society, for the will of God for my life. The will of God for my life. That kind of praying all the time means that for you, prayer is a key. You take that key and you put it in the keyhole. You turn it and what you're hoping happens is that God gives you this mysterious truth that will then point you in the right direction for every area of your life. Prayer is a key for you. Maybe it's a duty. Maybe it's a key. Jesus says, no. It is being who you are all the time as a child of the Father. I want to say a a quick note here, too, about assurance. Do you struggle with assurance of your salvation? Maybe that's you. That was a huge battle for me in my early 20s, big time, because I had prayed to receive Jesus at six years old and lived totally not for the Lord when I was in high school. And at 18, God really changed my heart and things really changed inside of me. And so then subsequent years were me trying to figure out the the whole thing and, and, and feeling like I needed to have my spiritual birthday. And I wasn't sure, was my spiritual birthday when I was six or was my spiritual birthday when I was 18? I didn't know. And so therefore, am I really, can I really be assured? And if I'm not assured, does that mean I'm not a Christian? Struggle, struggle. Maybe that's not you and you're thinking, man, that guy's crazy. (laughs) But maybe that is you and you struggle with assurance of your salvation. Let me say this to you. Maybe your lack of assurance that God is really your father comes from a failure to treat him as such by repeatedly going to him in prayer. You say, I don't feel like God's my father. Start repeatedly, persistently going to him as your father, and he will more and more begin to feel like your father. You will more and more have a consciousness that he is Abba. What you're waiting for is for him to come down and give you all of that, and then you can pray. No, obey his word and pray. Start now. 
Don't wait on him to act. Listen to his word and pray, and he will will begin to work into us a deep assurance of his fatherliness to us and of his fatherly care of us. So, this way of prayer is the only way, the sure way, the persistent way, and the natural way. And as we finish up this morning, I want to point out from verse 11 that it is also the perfect way. Look at, look at that verse, that final verse of this passage. And I would recommend uh, for those of you maybe who weren't here last week or haven't listened to the podcast, go back and listen to that first sermon last week to help tie all of this together. Verse 11. Our Lord Jesus says this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Here Jesus uses a form of argumentation that we're familiar with. We've already seen this. When discussing worry in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus points to nature. He says, look at the birds. God cares for the birds. And then he goes from that to say, how much more are you than the birds? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Look at the birds. God cares for the birds. You're greater than the birds. God will care for you. That's the logic that Jesus has and gives us in Matthew chapter 6. And this is the same argument that we find here. He says, look at earthly fathers. Look at what they do. Look at how they give to their children. By nature, it's in, they're inclined to do this. They tend to do this. How much more will your heavenly father give to you? This is what Jesus is saying. If imperfect, fallen, sinful, evil human beings know to give good things in response to the requests of their children and are inclined to do it. They know to do it. They know to do it and they want to do it by nature. How much more will the perfect, perfect father listen and give good things to his children? Before I move on, I want you to notice two little things here. These are, these are really side notes. Uh, they, don't, they don't follow through the logic of what it is I'm, I'm saying here, but, but we have to note them. We have to at least note them. Two things I want you to see. Here we have an implied, or it's, actually it's quite explicit, an explicit affirmation of the universality of sin. Here we have a, a, a clear teaching from Jesus. If we, if we miss this, then we miss the fact that, that this is not just taught in Romans chapter 5. Through one man, sin came into the world. And, and death came through sin. And all are sinners. Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. We have the same teaching here from Jesus. That all people are sinful. Jesus is looking at a group of people who have become his disciples. Who are blessed. Who belong to him now in this disciple-master relationship. And what does Jesus say to them? They're straightforward. Jesus being straightforward again. He says, you being evil. Wow. What he's saying to them is, you are fallen people. You are broken, fallen, imperfect, sinful, even evil men. So here we have clearly the teaching that all 
have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We also have another truth here that I want you to see, and it's very subtle, and you would miss it if you went too quickly, but he says, if you then who are evil, Jesus in that statement excludes himself from that category. Do you notice that? So here we have two great truths of, of, of Christian theology. We have the universality of sin, original sin, that all are under sin. And we also have the truth that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous, that he never sinned, that he always obeyed God. So I don't want you to miss these two little side notes, but they are side notes. So now let me continue and tell you what the main thing I'm trying to get at here with this perfect way. This way of persistent prayer is the perfect way. Hear this. Because it addresses the perfect Father. That is why it is the perfect way. And with this perfect Father, there is the perfect gift, the perfect wisdom, and the perfect goodness. I want to look at each of those briefly. The perfect gift, the perfect wisdom, and the perfect goodness or benevolence that we have with this perfect Father. So first, the perfect gift. The parallel passage in Luke eleven thirteen 13 says this. How much more? This is the same teaching portrayed by the writer, by Luke, who wrote his gospel. Luke eleven thirteen. 13. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the point I made last week, is, last week is that as we come to interpret what Jesus is saying here, I think we ought to interpret it in light of what Luke says Jesus is saying there. The Holy Spirit. That what we should think about here is primarily in spiritual terms. That the Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. What we need, people of God, is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we can do absolutely nothing. Christ said in John 15, without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we have Christ? By his spirit, whom he poured out on his people. So let me just rewind a little bit back to a series that we went through a while ago, and it was Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 6, 4, and it was on the family. And one of the things that you should have noticed, that all of us should have noticed as we were going through that series, is that verse 22 is where you get the beginning of the teaching as he starts to teach wives and husbands and children and parents. It's a wonderful passage for looking at what God's will is for the family. But there's a very important verse that you can't miss, and it's just about four verses before verse, verse 22. It's verse 18, and in that, Paul says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And one important point that you can't miss is that if you are to be a good wife or a good husband or a, a good child or a good parent, if you are to do any of that, it is all given to us by the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, and out of the filling with the Holy Spirit, we will then be able to function as Christians in the world and love and submit and sacrifice and teach and obey and all the things that we're told to do in that passage. We need the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, ask, It'll be given to you, seek, you will find, knock. And it will be open to you. So the perfect gift, we also have perfect wisdom. His complete knowledge of us 
and our spiritual growth should always be before our minds in prayer. The Father, the Heavenly Father, knows every single thing about you, knows every single habit that you have, knows every single aspect of your nature and nurture, if we want to divide it into those categories, every aspect of your need. What do you need in order to to move forward in the Lord? What do you need in order to have a, a close relationship with your Father and to be an obedient servant of your Lord and Master Jesus? What is it that God, God's Spirit needs to do in your life? The Father has perfect wisdom. And I want to make a point here about what God provides for us. Sometimes we want God to do something in our lives without persistent prayer. And here's something very important. You're going to see God's goodness in this, I think. One of the, God's wisdom, one of the things that God does is he brings us to persistent prayer. You say, well, why, did it have to, why does it have to be persistent? I mean, if God's a good and loving father, why is it that it needs to be persistent? Is he just standing back waiting on me to pray enough times and then he'll say, okay, and he'll give it to me? Is that what God is like? Is that what God is doing? And here's what I want you to see, the wisdom of God in all of this. Persistent prayer by itself, by its very nature, teaches you to be dependent on God. It teaches you to be humble and needy before him. In other words, persistent prayer rightly disposes your heart so that when he blesses you spiritually, it doesn't crush you. Because here's the thing we need to remember. When God blesses us with spiritual things, as he did with Paul, we are tempted to be puffed up in pride. And if if we're just going to God flippantly, but really depending on ourselves, and God's pouring all this spiritual growth into our lives, what does that turn into? Pride. Vanity. Evil. Wickedness. It's not good for us. So what the Father calls us to do is to lay down ourselves and to, and to within ourselves by the Holy Spirit to begin to persistently seek him, to learn a life of dependence. And out of that dependence, he will give to us. We continue to depend. He will give to us. We continue to depend all the way up until the end of this life. Always knowing everything we have is from the Lord. Not a single virtue, not a single victory is through self-reliance. So perfect wisdom Finally, perfect goodness or benevolence. His pursuit of our good is pure. Here's here's one of the things that we undoubtedly see in our own parenting. Undoubtedly, we see this in our own parenting. How much service of our children, how much do we do for our children that's not really serving them, but serving ourselves? How much, how needy, are we of our children? How needy are we of our children's affection? How needy are we of our children's, even our children's approval? And all the other things that that we associate with the relationship between a child and a parent. And imagine this, how often are the things that we're doing for our kids not really about the good of our kids at all? It's really about us. It's really about self. That's the reason we fail to discipline them as we ought. 
That's the reason we fail to teach them as we ought. That's the reason that we impatiently are stern and harsh with them instead of gentle and and patient. Self. And here's what we know about the Father. His pursuit of our good is pure, perfect, spotless, unadulterated. As good as you can be as a father, it is as nothing compared to how good our heavenly father is to us. So here's the promise. Our perfect father will give himself, his life, his character, his power in response to our persistent prayers. It is a promise that we can count on. So people of God, all of us, you asked, you have not because you ask not, just as James tells us. I want to give you two final thoughts before we close this morning. The first of these is this. God gives out of what he's already given. This is very important because everything we've talked about, asking, seeking, knocking, going to God, the idea is, okay, we don't have certain things and we need certain things from God. And and so all of this, all that we've said so far is very important, but it cannot be taken apart from what God has already given us. So I want you to hear these verses, very important for understanding that everything the Father gives us, He gives out of what He's already given. Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Out of the gift of His own Son, He will graciously give us all things. God gave us Christ when Christ died on the cross for our sins. And in Christ we have all things. 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We already have what we need by the Spirit in us to live a life of godliness. And then what we have for our call to worship, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He has blessed us. Not something we're waiting for him to do. We're not waiting for God to do something fundamental in this respect. He's already done it. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the first thing I want to say as we close. The second is a practical point for parenting that I think is huge. We can't miss this. I think this passage gives us one of the most important truths for parenting that we could ever find. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, this is probably the most important truth for parenting. You can read parenting book after parenting book after parenting book. But without this truth, all of it really is like building on sand. And here's the truth. The job of every imperfect father is to point his child to the perfect father. You will not be a perfect parent. And if that's your hope and your goal, you will fail. And you will be discouraged and bitter and resentful all the way. But if your job as a parent, if our job as parents is to recognize our imperfection and to every day say, but son, but daughter, 
There is a perfect father. And he will never fail you. He will give you what you need. Ask and seek and knock, and it will be open to you. I am an imperfect father. I am an imperfect mother, but he is a perfect father. He will never fail you. That's the job of every parent who bears the name of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word Lord Jesus, we thank you that all of those years ago you instructed your disciples that Matthew, one among them, wrote these things down as your your spirit gave him remembrance as you promised there in the gospel of John that, that he would do. We thank you, Father, that we have these precious words upon which to build our lives as Jesus goes on to say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Hearing these things and doing them is to build our lives on the rock. Father, would we do that? That is our prayer. Would we build our lives from this moment forward on your fatherly care, on our identity as children? Would we trust in you and would we seek you with all of our hearts? Would we ask believing and not asking to spend things on our own passions, but asking for the glory of your name and the advance of your kingdom? Father, would you help us? Apart from you, we can do nothing. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us Christ, our supreme treasure? In his name we pray, amen.